Hello, and welcome back to Japan Memo, the IISS Japan Chair Program podcast, where we're joined by experts, strategists, and practitioners to unpack why Japan matters in today's regional and global geopolitical landscape. I'm Robert Ward, Japan Chair and Director of Geoeconomics and Strategy here at the IISS. And I'm Yuka Koshino, IISS Research Fellow for Security and Technology Policy. We will be the host for this episode. Today, we're very much looking forward to welcoming Ambassador Sujan Chinoy and Ambassador Ishii Masafumi to discuss Japan's relationship with the Global South. Ambassador Chinoy is the Director General of the Manoir Parker Institute for Defense Studies and Analysis in New Delhi since 2019. As a career diplomat from 1981 to 2018, he held several important diplomatic assignments, including as Ambassador to Japan from 2015 to 2018. He's a specialist on China, East Asia, and political, military, and security issues. He is also the chair of the think tank T20 engagement group for India's G20 presidency this year. He's also the author of the World Upside Down India Recalculates Its Geopolitics, which was just published in July this year. Congratulations, Ambassador. Ambassador Ishii is a distinguished visiting professor of Gakushuin University, as well as an outside advisor to several Japanese private companies, including Nikko. He was the ambassador of Japan to Indonesia until December 2020 and retired from the Japanese Foreign Service in January 2021, having served there for more than 40 years. His overseas experience covers Washington, D.C., where he served twice. London, Belgium, and NATO as the ambassador. His last position was in Jakarta, which lasted for nearly four years. So, thank you very much both for being here to unpack Japan's relationship with the Global South. To kick us off, given how important the、uh, Global South has become strategically, given since Russia's invasion of Ukraine in 2022, I think it would be useful for our listeners to have some context on the history of Japan、uh, and its relations with the Global South. Ambassador Ishii, how do you feel about this relationship? How has it developed over the years? Japan has been trying to do a lot of good things for countries in the backyard, namely、uh, Southeast Asia, where we did a lot of bad things during the Second World War. But we have done a lot of good things as well since then. I think there are many important and growing countries among Southeast Asian countries, particularly big guys, Indonesia, Philippines, Vietnam, all of which will have the 100 million population. What we've been trying to do was to use a tailored approach to each one of them. I think that is one of the key issues we need to understand when we deal with global South countries, because my understanding is that there is no country called global South. There is no group of countries which has the same kind of priorities as a group to be called global South, simply because we are now going to enter into an era where we have more pillars. At this time, I can comfortably say that the US is the only superpower, considering the size of GDP and the defense spending. But in 10 years, I think we will enter into the world where we have G3, not G2, not US China, but US China to be joined by India, which will have the largest population in the world and、uh, whose, whose GDP will be world number three sometime in 2030. We will have more pillars, in other words, more choices for global South countries, which makes their diplomacy actually. More complicated because they have to take into consideration the positioning of all these important guys in dealing with each diplomatic issue. I think at present it's, it's kind of easier. It's,、uh, it's simple US China, US China conflict, right? If it's joined by India, there will be far many more options. My feeling is that 20 years from now, we will enter into a little bit more complicated era 
where we'll have Indonesia, whose GDP will become world number four, overtaking Japan's. Their population is big. Their aging will not start before 2040, like, like India. We'll be in the situation like it is now in dealing with、uh, Ukraine. You know, what if we create a new G7 at the beginning of 2040? There'll be G3, right? US, China, India. And、uh, Japan and Indonesia were number four and number five、uh, economies to be joined by European Union if it stayed united. And I think for that reason, they will stay united. If it's 2040, I wouldn't be surprised if the UK joins back again. The last number seven will be, I'm afraid, whether you like it or not, Russia. I think Russia will not going to go away even after the Ukraine war. They will stick to their existing privileges like a veto power, a huge number of nuclear weapons. That will make them a very difficult country to deal with. But we have to take care of them. So if something happens, boom, like Ukraine, you see Japan, US, European Union on one side, and China, Russia, they are not the same on the other side. Who are left in between? I think India and Indonesia. So these two guys, where these two guys, big guys, take their position, whether which side they are going to be an inch closer. We will decide the global majority. That's how Japan sees the future politics. That makes our approach to each one of the important global South countries、uh, more complicated, and it has to be more tailored approach. And it has to be more prioritized to concentrate because our resource is limited. We need to coordinate among like minded countries about the way to deal with those global South countries so that we can coordinate and divide labors. Japan. Will continue to be in charge of Southeast Asia. I think India will be in charge of Southwest Asia, as well as I think Central Asia. US has to deal with better Latin America, and I think Europe has to do more to deal with Africa and the Middle East. These are the keywords tailored approach, prioritization and concentration, and coordination and the division of labor. A number of interesting things in what you've just said, Ambassador Ishii. One of the points that I immediately landed on was the problems of the definition of Global South. As you rightly say, there's no country called Global South. So I think we're all in the market for a, a better term to describe these countries. And, and the other point that you made, I thought was worth repeating in the top five economies in your list, four are, are in Asia. Obviously, two economic superpowers, China and India, and then Japan and Indonesia. So lots to think about in terms of the geopolitical implications of that.、Too. To. Ambassador Chinoy, Japan, as Ambassador Ishii, has adopted a tailored approach to dealing with the, the so called、uh, Global South through strategic diplomacy, use of ODA, and other forms of, of international aid. From your standpoint, where do you see the unique aspects of Japan's relationship with the Global South countries? Firstly, thank you very much for inviting me to join your podcast. And as a point of inflection, I would like to take off from the term global south. I think the definition global south is a metaphorical term and is not to be taken literal because it's not something that defines a geography. The global south has its origins in essentially what used to be called the third world during the Cold War. But that was a different era in which there were a very large number of countries that were still under colonial rule. Or were just about coming out from being under colonial rule for a very long time. It is this large group of countries in Asia and Africa, essentially, that、uh, eventually became part of the non aligned movement. 
And as the 60s and 70s wore on, these countries began to find a voice for themselves, a political voice, not yet an economic voice at that point of time. But definitely, many of them were able to have impact on global politics, even during the Cold War, because of numbers. The non-aligned movement started from the conference in Bandung in 1955. Only 29 countries had participated in Bandung. But the non-aligned movement, of course, ended up having a very large number, uh, just like the G77 eventually has ended up with 135 countries. So that was the context then. Today, the global south essentially once again refers to developing countries that have not quite attained high standards of living, OECD standards. Many are, uh, in fact, low-income countries. Many are middle-income countries. But the difference uh, from the past is that today they have actually acquired some kind of economic power as well. For in the 21st century, growth has been flatter. It has spread beyond Northeast Asia or East Asia to other parts of Southeast Asia, South Asia, even Africa and Latin America. And therefore today, the global South is to be taken more seriously. Because when we look at the establishment of the G20 in 2008, the developing countries of the so-called global South accounted only for 20% of global GDP as a whole. 80% came from developed countries. Today, when you look at the equation, 42% of global GDP is accounted for by the global South. The share of developed countries has come down, and especially so in the new growth in GDP that is taking place. Having said that, let me mention how I see Japan's connect with uh, the global South. You see, Japan's connect with the global South essentially flows from its rising phoenix-like from the ashes of the Second World War to become a big and important economy beginning the 1950s, but especially through the 1960s and 70s. And so it's no great wonder that a Japan that felt that it had a debt to be paid to history decided to offer ODA, for example, to India in 1958. As time went on, Japan began to expand its horizons, uh, moving beyond its first periphery of comfort, which was always Southeast Asia. And by 1993, Japan had also begun the TICAD program, as you know, for Africa. And today, I would say that Japan, through its quality infrastructure, its ODA, its ability to offer skills, development, uh, capacity building, offers a choice in a world that is increasingly descending into binary choices. Japan has always been an economic power. Being an economic power without commensurate political influence or military footprint has actually been to Japan's advantage when reaching out to the developing world. There is therefore trust and faith in brand Japan. When Japan comes in to a, a developing country by way of ODA or investment, it is a trusted partner, more so because it has uh, very high standards in terms of fiscal responsibility and uh, feasibility studies, respect for the environment. Uh, the only catch here is that Japanese projects tend to be more expensive, but they also tend to be extremely high quality. Uh, so Japan has a history of having done good pro bono. And it's also a values-based approach. Japan is not there to beggar the neighbor. Japan is not there to get countries to, to fall into debt. And so Japan is uh, a gold standard in my view 
for doing good things like connectivity and infrastructure in developing countries. And in India, it also finds a kindred soul. Just a quick tangent, if I may. You mentioned growth and the importance of that. I'm just looking at my data for BRICS GDP, and China is about $19 trillion. India is $3.7 trillion, Russia $2 trillion, and Brazil $2 trillion, and South Africa is $400 billion. So within this global south, so-called, China's dominance, economically anyway, is vast. How do you see that playing out in terms of how the global south can act? If we go by the group of 77, where China came in and was it, it was later called G77 plus China, I think the real question today is, is China really part of the global south? With a GDP of $19 trillion, with a per capita income of uh, per capita GDP of nearly 12,000 US dollars, uh, personally, I think more than are not being sure about it, I think the Chinese themselves are not sure about whether they are part of the global south or not. I have had Chinese ask me serious questions like, do you think China is really part of the global south? Because there is a very real feeling today that China stands on its own. It does not share the perils and the distress of the global south, the numerous challenges that uh, developing countries are facing. It's not part of the group of 75 countries today that is under distress as a result of COVID-19 compounded by the war in Ukraine. China, in fact, is also not part of the G7. For me, it's a very odd question to answer. I haven't quite found the answer, but I don't quite believe China is part of the global south. It certainly does not share many of the values that the Global South shares. Its approach to the Global South is uh, extractive, and its approach to the so-called uh, developed countries is also rather extractive. I could see Ambassador Ishii getting agitated in Tokyo, but would you like to follow up on uh, Ambassador Chinoy's comments? Thank you, Ambassador Chinoy, for describing Japan in a very, very good way. I couldn't have done that myself, so much appreciated. Just two points. First point is uh, I checked a number of global South countries whose GDP is within number 60 of the world. I think the number hasn't changed in the past 20 years. In 2002, the number was 29 countries. 2012, uh, 10 years later, number is again 29. And 2022, last year, number 30. Of course, the, those global South countries who are within the top 30 2002, seven countries, 2012, 10 countries, 2022, 11 countries. Not much difference. Of course, the size of each GDP of each global South country has increased. Ranking-wise, I don't think it has had a dramatic change. But I do agree with you in a sense that the way you describe the increase of importance in the past, political importance, now it's coupled by the, the economic importance, which is true. It's not that dramatic from the GDP trend. Second point is ODA. ODA has been the most important diplomatic tool of ours. Whether it has worked in our favor or not is a different story. We have done a lot of ODA to India as well as to each one of the Southeast Asian countries. Since 2008, we have had the opinion polls in all the Southeast Asian countries. The consistent question has been, which country are you going to rely on more in future? Which country will become more important for you in future? We would have hoped that every one of Southeastern countries would say Japan above China. Not really, obviously. There are only three countries among 10 ASEAN countries where we see Japan coming above 
China in terms of more importance in future. These three countries are big guys, as I said, Indonesia, the Philippines, and Vietnam. Well, it doesn't mean that we'll stop doing it. We need to understand that there are other factors that decide the positioning of each important global South country. And by the way, ODA, now it's going to be OSA, Overseas Security Assistance, which will be a very important tool of ours, not only in terms of economic development, but also in terms of security. The budget for that OSA expands. We'll have uh, new tools to deal with Southeast Asian countries, which will be very important. Well, thank you very much, Ambassador Ishii. I think that's a really good segue into our next session. Let's dive deeper into the trends in Japan's relationship with some of the key countries that both of you touched on, Indonesia and India, among the global South countries who respond to the current affairs, especially the drastic changing strategic environment amid the rapid military and economic and political rise of China and the Russia's invasion of Ukraine in February 2023. So let's start from you, Ambassador Ishii. You've already touched on the role of ODAs and, and also the new tools that Japan has for OSA. And Ambassador Chinoy also mentioned that Japan offers a choice to the world where there's binary choices. Could you share with us your observations on how Japan has been approaching Indonesia and ASEAN countries to respond to the strategic and economic challenges arising from China to ensure a real space-free and open Indo-Pacific in the last decade? And also to add a second element to that, many countries in Southeast Asia have also had close historical links with Russia as well, not only China. So do you also see any changes to Japan's approaches to ASEAN countries after Russia's invasion of Ukraine? It's been once again tailored approach. Nowadays, we are more aware that the resource we have is very limited. And obviously, our main policy in dealing with Southeast Asia is ASEAN first bring all the 10 ASEAN countries to grow, make them grow together, which will continue to be our most important policy. We know they are different. Their relation with China is different. Their geopolitical position is different. Their relation with Russia is different, as you said. So we do need to have a different approach to a different country, uh, which we've been doing. We'll, we'll be more serious about differentiating our approach namely to concentrate on those countries who are ready to rely on us at the time of crisis, the big guys, as I said. They are equally under threat coming from China in the past few years, together with India, I think. Their relation with China has worsened in spite of their deep economic relation. Almost all the ASEAN countries, China has been the number one trading partner. Investment-wise, I, I think, even in Indonesia, the flow of each country's investment, uh, Japan used to be number two next to Singapore, but now China has been number two in the past few years. They are not all success stories, as you can see. Construction of the high-speed railway in Indonesia has been a very difficult failure case for China. Ambassador Chinoy said high-quality infrastructure has been our specialty, and although it's expensive, but the lifetime cost is less expensive if you take into consideration the cost necessary for maintenance and so on and so forth. We've been trying to present choice for all the Southeast Asian countries for that. 
Shifting our focus to India, where relations have been pretty good between the two over the years. Ambassador Chinoy, where do you see opportunities for further cooperation between Japan and India, particularly in the area of security, given the sort of tensions in the uh, Indo-Pacific? Where would you like to see Japan doing more to help India with its role in the region? Could I just chip in a bit about Southeast Asia and Japan's role in ASEAN? Japan is a country that traditionally knows Southeast Asia well, better than any other region. For many in government in Japan, Asia actually ends with Myanmar, with Southeast Asia. There's this psychological thing that uh, is slowly changing in Japan, uh, that Asia also means not just Southeast Asia, but also South Asia and beyond, you know, in the Indian Ocean, etc. When you look at Japan's trade with Southeast Asia, as was mentioned by Ambassador Ishii, it's uh, probably been the second largest or the third largest trading partner of ASEAN all along, with 25 trillion Japanese yen worth of trade with Southeast Asia, with ASEAN. And if you compare India's trade with ASEAN, it's less than a trillion Japanese yen, 744 billion. And we are the 18th largest partner for Japan. So what really that suggests to you is that Southeast Asia is very important for Japan as a trading partner. The fly in the ointment here in Southeast Asia is that Japan has not been able to fully take on the China challenge in the ASEAN countries, uh, primarily because Japanese companies are also themselves involved in cooperative ventures with Chinese companies, including in Belt and Road infrastructure. The BRI, Belt and Road Initiative, has a lot of connectivity projects and Japanese companies are involved in this. This change took place in 2017 when the Abe administration, out of a desire to improve ties with China, actually permitted Japanese companies to work alongside Chinese companies in BRI projects. A company group like Itochu, for instance, uh, signed up to work with Chinese uh, companies. And there was the third party market cooperation agreement uh, known as 3PMCA, which was concluded in 2018. So now what you have is a complex situation in Southeast Asia. More recently, of course, uh, the Japanese government is again reversing that trend. But the point here is that it's a prevarication of a type. Cannot pull out completely from working with Chinese companies at the economic level. And when it comes to India and Japan, we have shared values. We have no bilateral issues that put us in any kind of contradictory position. Both India and Japan greatly emphasize peace, nonviolence. Japan traditionally has not been very forthcoming with regard to defense cooperation with anyone except perhaps the United States of America. This is because Japan was defanged after the Second World War and much of its defense industry was also eradicated. At least the, the potency and the sting was taken out except perhaps in things like uh, avionics and electronics, where it continued to do well, including for uh, US F-16s and, and things like that. It's only after Prime Minister Abe came onto the scene that Japan began to review this posture in light of the rise of China, its uh, unilateralism, its militarization, and its growing shadow and challenge in the East China Sea. And not just the Senkakus, but also for the Okinawa Islands in the long run. Prime Minister Abe set up the National Security Council Secretariat. He actually reviewed export controls. By 2015, 
there was legislation for collective security and guidelines in this regard in terms of cooperation with the United States of America. And more recently, Japan has been reviewing its national security strategy, the midterm plans for defense, allocating a much higher budget, up to 2%. It has moved uh, forces towards the south. Japan is now poised to play a bigger role in terms of security paradigms in the Indo-Pacific. It is, of course, uh, one of the first countries to advocate the Indo-Pacific. Alongside India, we are the two bookends of uh, Indo-Pacific growth and development as well as security. As far as bilateral cooperation is concerned, you are aware that Japan is now, since 2015, a regular member of the uh, Malabar exercises. Australia was brought in in 2020. India and Japan have a cross-servicing agreement for logistics and sharing of such facilities. We have signed an agreement for deeper naval cooperation. We have an exercise between India and Japan, between our ground forces. India is perhaps the only country with which Japan has an exercise between ground forces, self-defense forces. It's called the Dharma Guardian exercise. It is for counterinsurgency. We've also recently uh, had an exercise between our air forces, between the Indian Air Force and the Japanese Air Force. So our uh, security ties are growing. And because we are both part of the quadrilateral security dialogue, there is a lot that we work on together in terms of freedom of navigation and overflight, unimpeded commerce on the high seas, joint review of critical supply chains, uh, high technologies, etc. Japan has some of the best technologies in the world for defense. Large uh, consortiums like Kawasaki and Mitsubishi and many others, uh, they traditionally have a history of hand-holding by Meti and by the government. Only 4 to 5% of their production is for exports. The rest is all for domestic consumption. So Japan has never been interested in defense exports. They've never been used to the rough and tumble of defense tendering, particularly a large uh, defense uh, importer like India, for instance, where uh, the United States and France and Israel, they know the rules of the game and they, they know how to tender. And uh, Japan prefers G2G deals. And it's also been disappointed in some of its efforts, G2G, uh, the Sakura submarine deal with uh, Australia. It didn't work out. In India's case, of course, the US-2 amphibious aircraft also didn't really see the light of day. So I think we need to encourage Japan to do more on coming out with its technologies, bidding for contracts like everybody else does. The so-called normalization of Japanese defense industry is a must. India will be a, a very good partner for Japan because both have this basic orientation for promoting peace and nonviolence. And yet both retain the ability to defend their sovereignty and territorial integrity. So we are two of a kind. Your comments, Ambassador Chinoy, on the importance of Abe Shinzo for the relationship with India is a good segue to a, a, to a little small plug for this book that Yukra and I contributed to. It's been published in India by, and edited by our friend of the Institute, Sanjaya Baru, and called The Importance of Shinzo Abe. And it has some great articles, essays uh, from uh, Indian scholars about the relationship between Abe Shinzo in particular, but also Japan and India. So definitely worth reading.
If we could just open the conversation a bit now to look at the future, Japan has got a, a pretty unique standpoint, being the only Asian country、uh, in the G7, of course, and having a close relationship we, as we've been discussing with the global South through its diplomatic ties, historical development cooperation, and so on. Given these features that Japan has, Ambassador Ishii, what role do you think Japan should play between the G7 and the global South on issues、uh, such as?、Uh, Uh, China and、uh, Russia's war against Ukraine. This year, we've been a chair country for G7, and、uh, you see the list of、uh, outreach countries in the summit meeting in Hiroshima. We had India, Australia, Indonesia, Brazil, Ukraine, African Union, as well as the Pacific Islands countries. These choices were quite intentional, particularly Brazil. Our intention is to try to include India and Indonesia under whatever justification. This year, we used the ASEAN and chair of G20 in involving India and Indonesia. But I think, for the reason I explained about the future trend of the global situation, I think G7 should include India and Indonesia as、uh, among the list of、uh, outreach countries wherever they are, whatever they are doing. African Union chair of African Union has been included in wherever it takes place, even in Europe, India too. But、uh, we missed Indonesia if it takes place normally in Europe. Brazil was an interesting example because now BRICS is taking place. You see the kind of、uh, division among、uh, BRICS countries in terms of the expansion of BRICS for future: China, Russia on one hand, and、uh, India, Brazil on the other side. So that shows their positioning. For us, inviting、uh, Brazil to Hiroshima was was very very important. Since we have India inside BRICS, we are not too much worried about the future of BRICS because India acts in accordance with its own national interest, which is more or less in the same line with ours. So that's how we see the future interaction between G7 and Global South、uh, countries. Getting back to the uh, points, uh, Ambassador Chinoy mentioned. Quick reaction: Number one, trade. Indian trade with Southeast Asian country has been too small, and there is a natural trend to increase it. Once it happens, I think India's、uh, growth will be much more. After all, as we all know, that archipelago、uh, is called the、uh, Indo-China area, right? Indochina. So that means traditionally, historically, that was the area where the influence of India and China. Collided with each other. There was a competition between India and China over the influence in that area. That's going to happen in the future too. And now it, it's joined by the United States too. China, United States at this time, but India will join in 10 to 20 years time. That's very very important, and that will, I'm afraid, make、uh, Southeast Asian countries more divided in their position. Arms export, Ambassador Chinoy, thanks for your encouragement. We'll try to do it. That、uh, liberal, further liberalisation of、uh, arms export is、uh, included in a new national security strategy issued、uh, last December, and I think political parties are now working on it. There will be a reasonable liberalisation. We are determined to use it to have a more engagement with countries like India and Vietnam. Those are two very important countries for the reason I mentioned, and also those are the countries where the share of the Russian arms is very high. During the Ukraine war, it's difficult to get spare parts from them. Anyway, we are working on Indonesia for arms export too. We've been discussing the export of Japanese frigate to Indonesia because of the budgetary constraint after COVID-19 and the 
their plan to move their capitals, it's now off. But uh, I think it will, it will come up as soon as they have enough budget. We are making a few efforts. You too is a very unfortunate example, I think. But uh, I hope we'll do a better job with India too. In dealing with Indonesia for the sale of frigate, we are now fighting with uh, those expert competitors like uh, Turkey and Italy, with which we are working together for development with the UK of uh, new fighters. OSA, Official Security Assurance, as well as the arms export, will become uh, two important new tools for us to establish our relation, deepen our relation with countries in the region. Japan-India relation. India is very, very important for us considering the future. And of course, now it's very important. Quote is very important for us. We are not 100% thrilled by Indian response to Ukraine war. In discussing the reason why India is taking the present position, we have found out more clearly the India's strategic priorities. China has been the number one challenge for Japan and for India. That's a common place to start. We saw India becoming a serious member of Quad. So we misunderstood that uh, India decides to use Quad as a priority base for dealing with China, which is wrong. We actually asked the question to Indian officials, why are you taking this position? Why, why do you have to maintain your relation with Russia? They told us, as Ambassador Chinoy mentioned, Quad is good, but Quad is for maritime security issue in the eyes of Indonesia. Indian challenge is not single. They have China-India border, they have Pakistan. Counter question from them to us, Quad members, is that are you ready to support India in dealing with China-India border issue? Not really, right? I think that is part of the reason why even Japan has started army-to-army exercise with India. Actually, we are doing the army-to-army exercise with Indonesia too. We are now trying to show more readiness to deal with security concern of India, not only maritime security concern, but also the army-to-army concern. The reason why India doesn't see the Quad help India in dealing with India-China border, the nightmare for them is to see Russia support China in case of uh, India-China border conflict. So that's why they are telling us they cannot cut away from uh, Russia completely. We don't like it, but uh, that's understandable. If something of the same magnitude happens in future, we have a better idea about possible reaction of uh, India. Now that we know the strategic perspective of Indians more clearly. All in all, our relation is close. Ukraine made our relation even closer with a better understanding of the, uh, each other's strategic priorities. Sorry, once again, long. Could I just chip in on this, if you don't mind, because India and uh, some of its uh, security policies were mentioned. I think I should put it into proper context. The war in Ukraine is not a black swan event. It's not even something that should surprise us because it's a grey rhino event, long in the making. People knew it was coming right from the time of friction between Russia and Georgia. We had seen it coming from Moldova, from Crimea, uh, and yet uh, it seems to have caught people by surprise. Don't forget that uh, just a few years ago, Prime Minister Abe was trying very hard to befriend Russia, was trying to reset his old policy uh, vis-a-vis the Russian Federation, including with regard to the Kuril Islands, uh, the Northern Islands. So now let me make one fundamental point here. It's often uh, said that Japan was a little disappointed with India's position with regard to the war in Ukraine. The point here is that Japan has an independent relationship with Russia and has practiced 
its own outreach and diplomacy without inputs from India. Likewise, India has an independent relationship with the Russian Federation, which is based on defense and such other equipment that we have sourced from them. India also has some stakes in energy investments uh, in Russia, in the Sakhalin project, for instance. But the one thing that we have in common, despite the war in Ukraine, is that it's not just India that is sourcing energy from Russia. It's also Japan, a member, a full member of the G7, one that has condemned Russia's aggression, uh, so to speak, in Ukraine, but that still continues to buy roughly 9.5% of its own natural gas requirements from that very same country. Now, therefore, what this shows is that every country, whether Japan or India, acts in self-interest. We act in self-interest because we have a dependency on Russia with regard to some of our defense requirements. Japan continues to source energy from Russia despite Ukraine, despite the condemnation, because it has a certain dependency on Russia. Now, as far as the Quad is concerned, let us be very clear. You see, three of the four Quad countries, that is the United States, Japan, and Australia, have a maritime threat perception vis-a-vis the disruption in the Asia-Pacific from the rise of China and its militarization. India has both maritime, but more primarily a continental issue. We are the only one which has a land border with China. And mind you, the important thing here to note is that the United States, since 1962, has recognized Arunachal Pradesh in the east, which is claimed by China, but under India, as an integral part of India. In the Western sector, where the bloodshed took place in 2020, the United States has a position of relative cartographic neutrality, showing Aksai Chin as what you call disputed. But both Japan and Australia, our close partners in the Quad, show Aksai Chin as an integral part of China. Now, if Japan and Australia in the Quad show Aksai Chin as an integral part of China, where is the question of these two ever coming to be by our side in any continental conflagration with China in the Western sector, in Ladakh, so to speak. So there are complexities here. What I have told both the Japanese and the Australian governments, ambassadors, and various other people, including Mr. Yoshiaki Wada, who came to see me recently. He's a minister of state in the Japanese state cabinet, taking great interest in enhancing defense cooperation between Japan and India. And I told him that it's about time, in the name of the quadrilateral security dialogue and all that we stand for, that the very least that Japan and Australia can do is to have a cartographic position on India's sovereignty and territorial integrity, that is at least the same as that taken by the United States of America. Now, therefore, I have never expected that anyone in the Quad would come and, you know, stand by our side when when we have a bigger chestnut in the fire that's continental. But that does not mean that we don't have cooperation. We have a great deal of cooperation with the United States of America, intelligence sharing on ISR, and we're going to do a lot more in the Quad with regard to the Indo-Pacific maritime domain awareness, as you know. One more point. I have a suggestion that, you know, when Japan is coming out like a butterfly coming out of a chrysalis, you know, into the domain of defense exports and all that, why not do something together, India and Japan, best of friends, shared values, 
we have low cost manufacturing if you bring your technologies into indian naval dockyards that are capable of manufacturing our own aircraft carriers no less we can certainly build a frigate for you at much cheaper cost and your frigates will then sell like hotcakes around the world so do that because if you make the same frigate in japan it's either too expensive for you to give away or too expensive for anyone else to buy it on any kind of loans you know so so we should try and work together india and japan thank you i think that was a really good conversation to wrap up this really rich discussion on of this podcast i think we also touched on the, some of the challenges and potential new areas and ways for cooperation especially between japan and India as the chairs of this year's G7 and G20. We're unfortunately at the very end of the session, so I would like to ask the two Japan memo questions. So the first one, do you have a book recommendations for listeners who wish to understand Japan? Ambassador Tsunori, do you have any recommendations? I don't know. I, I, the first book that I read was uh, Edwin Reischauer's, as you know, uh, one of the first books in Japan that I read many, many years ago when I was 20 years old. um so i thought that was a great book you know a book written in uh, you know, perhaps the late 50s or early 60s and knowing japan today is two very different things i think personally book aside i think japan has changed and i think japan is changing rapidly japan is having its own epiphany that it's not enough to be the world's second largest developed economy the world's third largest economy per se to have a footprint in every part of the world but to be a shrinking violet when it comes to security issues japan has the potential to actually provide securitized economic growth development and progress to many parts of the world and especially on its periphery on its periphery which is today being exploited by one particular power that is hell bent on limiting the extent of power and the power of all traditional stakeholders that it considers extra regional and it's time that japan also stepped in if japan were to step in with what i would call securitized economic development and i think a great advancement in this is the overseas security assistance program oda morphing into osa it actually opens up vistas for building uh, dual use infrastructure as well uh you know whether it's runways or whether it is jetties and piers whether it is uh, floating platforms uh that can go onto the high seas it's vital that japan uses its economic potential to provide uh, security to the region it's stepping up to the plate now it's not just pro bono it's it's going to do it for its own reasons i'm so tempted to mention this other book the sword and the chrysanthemum this absolutely extraordinary book by ruth, ruth benedict is um, an eye opener and i'd say that some of what she said in the late 40s is actually quite relevant even today and one way of understanding japan from my point of view and i first interacted with japan as a 20 year old when i was chosen to to go on a scholarship as a as an exchange student as a kokanryu gakusei to the otemon uh, gakuin uh, daigaku you know the university in osaka the epiphany for me was that uh, you know japan must be seen for what it is firstly there's the group dynamic there japan tends to move after great deliberation the process is slow long drawn sometimes exasperating but once the ship is steered in a particular direction it actually takes the whole nation in that direction 
This includes government departments. It includes the private sector in industry as well. So we have to remember this about Japan. There's no point in reaching out to single individuals and imagining that in a fit of individual exertion, Japan will change policy. There is this phenomenal deliberation that goes on. So I think developing the right kind of consensus in Japan and getting them to focus on the right kind of challenges, threats, opportunities is not just the job of the Japanese people and Japanese scholars and experts like Ambassador Ishii, but it's also the job of the rest of the, the rest of the world that want to see Japan do a, a particular thing the right way. You know, There is no holding back Japan. It has such potential. What I worry about the most is the younger generation in Japan. There is absolutely no interest, in my view, in what goes on beyond the islands of Japan. They are quite happy with the way things are, trains running on time and the Yakuen meals being served uh, wherever required and the you know slot machines and the pachinko parlor. Look, you know the world outside is changing in different ways and Japan is going to be challenged. So get the younger generation to take greater interest in foreign policy. And once they do that, they are a phenomenal people. Innovative, they are extremely hardworking, focused, and they tend to build consensus that actually is sustainable in the long run. Ambassador Chinoy, I think you've just answered the second Japan memo question in advance of our asking it, which is very prescient of you. So perhaps I'll ask the second question to Ambassador Ishii. What do you think people often get wrong about Japan? The point that we, we've been seen as strong, like a productivity, is not actually a strong point. Our productivity is very low. At the same time, what is normally seen as Japan not being able to do Things like uh, military-to-military cooperation, joint uh, production of military equipment. I think that has become possible, as Ambassador Shinori was mentioning. Japan, UK, Italian joint uh, development of uh, next fighter is a typical example. And uh, you see more of these examples in future. So I think the limit you normally put to what Japan can do is now almost gone. Not completely gone, but uh, almost gone will become more President Trump-like, will be more aware of Japan's national interest and act in accordance with that, as Ambassador Chinoy was asking Japan to do. Human resources, that's the only resource we have. No natural resource, we need to rely on their brains. That's a nice, I think, and a very positive way to end this very rich discussion. So huge thanks, Ambassador Chinoy and Ambassador Ishii as well for your views and your long experience has really come to the fore in this session. And thank you as well to all our listeners for joining us on another episode of Japan Memo. If you enjoyed this episode, we urge you to subscribe to Japan Memo on the podcast platform of your choice. For more insightful analysis, I also encourage you to look at past research by the Japan Chair Programme and the IISS on our website. We also hope to connect with you on Twitter, where we are actively sharing the latest news and analysis on everything Japanese geopolitics and more. You can find us at Robert Allen Ward at Yuka Koshino, and you can find Ambassador Chinoy at at Sujin Chinoy and Ambassador Ishii at, at J-P-N-A-N-D-S-I-N-D-O-N-E-S-I. Thanks again, and see you next time. <laughs>